WebAssembly is a binary instruction format for applications to run in a memory-constrained, stack-based virtual machine. The WebAssembly ecosystem consists of tools and projects that allow programs in a variety of languages to compile into WebAssembly and run in a safe, fast, sandboxed runtime environment. WebAssembly is a transformative technology for the Internet. Most users will experience WebAssembly as a set of gradual, incremental improvements to their online experiences. Pages will load faster and become more dynamic. Applications will become more secure. Infrastructure will become cheaper, and those cost savings will eventually reach the consumer. For developers, WebAssembly opens a world of possibility. In today's operating systems, the user can feel a big difference between applications that need a large, client-side runtime, such as video editing tools or render-heavy games such as Half-Life, and applications that are more lightweight and can run entirely on the web, such as Twitter. This dichotomy may change over time as we get WebAssembly making these super-compute-intensive games and render-heavy tools like video editing software. This stuff might be able to run on the internet. Tyler McMullen is the CTO at Fastly, and he joins the show to talk about the compilation path, the runtime, and the opportunities of WebAssembly. Tyler's a great speaker, and I really enjoyed having him on the show. Tyler McMullen, you're the CTO at Fastly. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Happy to be here. We've done several shows about WebAssembly. But I think it's important to start by just talking about why this technology is relevant to us. Why is WebAssembly important? So to me, WebAssembly is important. Honestly, like the biggest reason to me is that it's kind of the first time that we have ever as a community, like actually agreed upon a generic, safe, relatively fast, easily compilable uh, intermediate representation. Like I look at WebAssembly not as a language, but as an intermediate representation as an IR. And so like that's given that it's the first time that we've done that, like I think there's a lot of stuff that we don't really know yet. Honestly, like I think the, the closest we ever got to this before was like the JVM, which which has its own set of issues, right? No, that's okay. Uh, that, I think that's a fair rep description and, and we'll unpack why an intermediate representation, which sounds really niche to probably a lot of the listeners, we'll get into why that is so important. But let's talk high level. So imagine we're five years into the future. How has WebAssembly changed my day-to-day -day life in five years? Sure. Well, if everything goes to plan, it means that in five years, you are theoretically writing the, some of the same code that you write is capable of running across many different platforms, whether that's on your local computer, in like some sort of centralized cloud setup at the edge, as we are doing in the browser, on your phone. You know, if we can create a consistent platform that goes across all of these different types of devices, and I know that there are initiatives going on in various places like to do each of those things, I think that would change a lot of how people think about writing code. The intermediate representation you alluded to in the comparison to perhaps the, the JVM or uh, Java servlets, I think we should unpack this analogy and this description a little bit more. There's also the analogy we could draw to the uh, LLVM, these virtual machine environments that are highly portable. If we can get our code into these intermediate representations, we can run 
any of these these code these types of codes that can be compiled into these intermediate representations on whatever medium can run this this virtual machine and we we talked a little bit about that in a, in an episode with Steve Klavnik but but give me your your perspective on that like how does the web assembly view of an intermediate representation compare to past intermediate representation approaches we have uh, undergone as a as an industry sure so i think the biggest difference so, so there's a bunch of differences between web assembly and some of the past implementations of this but I think probably the biggest difference is uh, the focus on safety, right? So obviously, if something is running in a browser, it needs to not be able to break out and look at other other things that are going on in other parts of the browser, or obviously, you know, other things going on in that user's computer. So like it being safe was utmost importance, right? So the focus on safety there was like down to the point where like it, you know we have like actual formal semantics for this, like. The type system for WebAssembly is like provably sound. We have uh, what's referred to as like small step semantics for WebAssembly as well, meaning we can uh, symbolically execute WebAssembly and kind of see, essentially prove things like control flow safety. So I think that's probably the biggest difference. There's also like a bunch of smaller differences as well. So like WebAssembly focused a lot on keeping the binary representation small, right? Uh, And that was primarily for the benefit of browsers, right? So if you're downloading these WebAssembly modules there, as small as uh, reasonably can be expected. And then I guess another important one was that there was also a focus on making it generic enough that it can be compiled across many different types of CPUs and platforms. My sense is that you can boil down the difference between the WebAssembly uh, compiler tool chain and runtime environment versus the, the previous environments and uh, compiler tool chains but you can just you can just describe web WebAssembly's cleaner. It's cleaner. It's it's less of a of a footprint. It's more efficient. We've had more time to grow as an industry. We've had more time more time to develop relationships where uh, large players trust each other and they can reach across the table and and shake hands with other large players and agree upon standards without uh, nefarious underhanded tactics. So far, yeah, that that part has gone really smoothly. It has, and and perhaps we can talk a little bit more about that diplomacy a little bit later on. But I think you know, suffice to say, I think the industry has realized just how much value there is in in fundamental software, and basically, like it seems like we're kind of on the verge of solving some of these collective action problems that that happened in open source in the past. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, I guess I guess one comment though about the like the idea of WebAssembly being like smaller and cleaner, it, it that is absolutely true at the moment. But of course, like it's also a lot younger than all the other projects out there. So there's always the concern that like if you're not careful with how this thing grows, it could grow in a way that you really don't want it to. But so far, like the way that the WebAssembly community group and working group has been set up. Like that collaborative nature also goes down to like deciding which things actually make it in, right? Like multiple implementations have to exist already before a modification can get into the standard, for instance. So we've been like, you know, just the fact that like it's not controlled by one single entity means that I think that we're doing a pretty good job at preventing it from growing in like weird ways. It's one of these tools where... For some developers, WebAssembly is going to completely fade into the background, and you're not really going to know why, but your applications are getting more secure, they're getting more performant, you know, things are just improving. Like I think about containers and Kubernetes relative to the React.js developer, 
She's like, totally not not in my purview. You know, my my deployments are getting better. Things are getting better. But, you know, I don't really care about the, the goings-on of the Kubernetes world. So who who is WebAssembly, like, whose developer life is WebAssembly actually going to change? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. I, you know, I think in a lot of ways you're exactly right. Like, for most developers, they shouldn't actually even know that it's there. Obviously, like, if you're working with it, say, in a browser at the moment, like, you very much know that it's there. Like, it takes work to make WebAssembly, like, work smoothly, especially, like, to interact with other parts of, like, your JavaScript code, for instance. That said, if you were to use something like like Terrarium, like a thing that we released back at the end of last year, which is kind of a like a, it's a kind of a tech demo of like the compiler that we had been working on, you don't really even need to know that WebAssembly is there. Like all you know is that you have a platform that can take a bunch of different languages and it just it just works, right? I think that over time we will actually see WebAssembly. I mean, ideally kind of fade into the background for a lot of people, kind of just as you described there. Like, you shouldn't really know that it's there. Most people shouldn't really be working with WebAssembly code directly, much in the same way that I'm, you know, not typically working with, like, x86 assembly directly. <laughs> yes. But, yes, the term assembly uh, perhaps <laughs> should should, <laughs> should be telling. Now, that said, my favorite uh, example of, like, what I really want to see WebAssembly change is I use a digital audio workstation, and the, I use FL Studio, which is this, you know, I think I'm on FL Studio 20, which is, like, the 20th version of this really old monolithic software that is is magical to me. It's, like, super useful to me. And it's kind of like, you know, Photoshop. Like, Photoshop is this thing. It's, like, been around for a really long time. And I think they've got Photoshop, like, maybe working in the browser now, or it's, like, verging on working in the browser. Oh, yeah, I heard that. And probably WebAssembly has something to do with it, or if not, then they have, you know, very big plans for that. But there's a lot of people at Adobe, and there's a lot of incentive to make Photoshop work really well in the browser. It's less the case for a digital audio workstation. I mean, certainly plenty of people use these things to make music and to do audio editing, but there's a little bit less incentive, so there's less developer resources. And so I wonder what the roadmap is for a company like that, a company like ImageLine, Maybe there's like, I don't know, 15 developers working on it, if they, like if at all. Like maybe there's five developers working on it, and they want to port their, their giant old monolith to WebAssembly. When is their life going to be easy? Right. Okay. So this is, this is kind of a fun one, right? So they, they could absolutely do that today, right? Like it would be absolutely possible for them to do that today. The problem, of course, is like integrating it, right? It's like, all right, we have all this code, we can compile it to WebAssembly. But of course, that code is expecting other interfaces to exist, whether it's like syscalls into the operating system or like specific sets of libraries, for instance, right? It's expecting like certain lower level interfaces to be there. And right now, well, up until recently anyway, if you wanted that in WebAssembly, the problem was that you essentially had to create that syscall layer yourself in JavaScript. So this is actually kind of the point behind, or like one of the points behind the WASI initiative, the WebAssembly System Interface Initiative. You can kind of think of it, like the way I think of it as, is basically POSIX, the POSIX syscall layer, but for WebAssembly. And the whole idea there is that like if you have a normal C program, uh, you know, relatively basic C program, think like, you know, starting with like, you know, printf hello world, right? Right now, like, or until WASI was released, like, the way that that would actually end up being implemented is, like, you would compile it, 
And then you would have to somehow like write a like a print function that existed in JavaScript that would know how to look into the WebAssembly linear memory, pull out the string that you actually wanted to print, and then like print it in the console or whatever, right? The cool thing with WASI is that it makes that syscall layer exist already, right? Like it, you, you, in the browser, it'll create like a polyfill for it, and potentially browsers will also support it directly eventually. But it, it kind of creates this layer that should make WebAssembly feel a lot more like a normal like platform that you would normally like, you know, you just compile it and you run it. And like, you know, and this is also actually like, uh, I don't know, I could talk about WASI for a while. Like the, the really cool thing with WASI to me is that it creates a target that compilers can actually like, uh, you know, compile toward, right? So if you look at the way that say like Rust and Clang and AssemblyScript and all these other languages that now have like WebAssembly backends to them, there was no real way to predict exactly what they were going to attempt to import from the from the external world, right? Like, like everybody had a different way of doing this. So the cool thing with web, like with WASI is that like, you know, we can actually start to agree upon like what the interface to that outside world should actually look like. And then like all these different compilers will come along and like they should, their output should just, it should just work, right? WASI is WebAssembly System Interface. Correct. And, and my understanding is like this gives WebAssembly nice APIs for interacting with a file system? Well, so the file system is part of it. It's probably the biggest part of it. That's the part that people will like see initially. But really, it's, it's more like, you know, you have all your syscalls in Linux that allow you to interact with the outside world. So there would be like the file system, the, you know, standard in, standard out, uh, reading and writing. There's like, you know, potentially sockets and so on. There's like timers and mutexes and all these sorts of different things that like the kernel actually provides for you on say a Linux box or on like a, on an OS 10 box. And so now we're kind of matching those same sorts of concepts at least as an interface that WebAssembly can use. And really, this basically just allows compiler developers to know what to target. A syscall, is that if I make a syscall, I'm, I'm calling from user space into kernel space? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Sorry, I probably should have explained that. And so this, this kind of comes back to, like, I'm using the term in a strange way in this case, right? So this kind of comes back to like what WebAssembly is actually like emulating or simulating, like what that virtual machine is. Like the way that I think about it is this, like if you think about like the way a container works, like a Docker container, the Docker container is more or less like emulating the entire operating system, right? Like it's pretending that you have your own operating system that you are like running processes inside of, right? WebAssembly is like one level below that. So if you imagine basically a WebAssembly instance uh, kind of emulates a like a process in the way that you would think about a process, right? Which means that if you are running a WebAssembly instance inside of something, then the thing that you are running it inside of effectively becomes the operating system to that WebAssembly instance. So when I say a syscall here, I'm using it in kind of a metaphorical way. So essentially, like when you're calling out of that WebAssembly instance, it doesn't really know what's on the other side, right? It doesn't need to know what platform you're running on, like what operating system and what, like what embedding you're running in. Like all it knows is that on the other side is effectively the kernel, right? That's kind of the way that I think about it anyway. So this is, this is kind of important because if we're talking about letting my browser, you know, WebAssembly code in the browser 
can reach into effectively kernel space. That's you know that's kind of a, a scary proposition, right? <laughs> not 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 quite that. Again, this is kind of a metaphorical thing, right? Like the thing that you are running the WebAssembly inside of effectively becomes the kernel to the WebAssembly. Like it doesn't know the difference, right? Of course, like what you have done is like protected the actual kernel from this. It's kind of a hard concept to explain now that I think about it. Like it's a weird one. But suffice it to say, like, yeah, this is this is still safe as long as you do it correctly. It's not actually reaching into your kernel. It's that it thinks it's reaching into the kernel, but it's really just reaching into your user space code that you provided. Well, let's go a little bit deeper. So, okay, when I have this browser, I, I'm, I'm running a bunch of browsers right now. Well, a bunch of browser uh, windows and tabs in those windows. You know, I got Firefox doing this. I got Chrome doing that. What access levels do these browsers have to the underlying resources like what is ultimately give, give me kind of the uh the trace of you know when i do something in the browser how does that result in or to what extent does that browser have uh you know privileges to to access the you know underlying system resources sure well i'm definitely not a browser expert uh to be to be clear but the browser itself, uh, I mean, as far as I understand, has like just standard system resource access that like that any other process on your system would have. The point that I was trying to make is that if you are running, say, a WebAssembly instance inside of some JavaScript in your browser, right, the WebAssembly instance doesn't really know what's on the other side, right? Like it only has access to the exact things that you allow it to have access to, much in the same way that a process on your computer only has access to the things that the kernel allows it to have access to. So like metaphorically, it's kind of a similar sort of concept here. And so that's effectively like what WASI is doing is like in the same way that your kernel provides a set of syscalls to allow your process to access whatever resources, the embedder of the WebAssembly instance provides a certain set of function calls, effectively syscalls, to allow the WebAssembly instance access to whatever resources. Now, I think I am recalling from my uh, conversations with Lynn Clark that WebAssembly is is memory constrained, right? So, like, you have to allocate the resources that the WebAssembly is going to get and then like re like grab those garbage collect them manually yourself. So so that's that's what you're saying here if if I understand correctly. Uh, kind of kind of yeah. It's really more about like the interface, right? It's you know, WebAssembly if you run it without providing it any say import functions, any functions that it's allowed to import, it only has access to like itself, right? It has no access to the outside world. And so like it's that is actually one of the like most important things to me about like how WebAssembly works is that 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 interface is entirely customizable. Right. And so WASI is like an attempt at providing a standard around that. But it's an interesting point about like WebAssembly and and like it's your need for garbage collecting things explicitly inside of it. And it's like general like resource resource restrictions. Um, That's also like a really important part of safety in this case. I want to approach this topic from another angle. In the JavaScript world, there are multiple runtimes. So we have the V8 engine, we have Chakra, we have SpiderMonkey. SpiderMonkey, I think, came out of Mozilla. Chakra came out of uh, Microsoft. And these different JavaScript runtimes will perform kind of different lower-level implementations of higher level JavaScript code, depending on what browser they're running in. This is one of the reasons why you sometimes have like kind of browser issues from from uh, application to application. 
So this world of, of JavaScript, multiple JavaScript runtimes, ignoring WebAssembly for a second, what, what were the pros and cons of this world where we had multiple engines that could run JavaScript in different ways? Pros and cons, right? Well, so of course you have, like, I guess let's start with cons. To me, like, the biggest con is the fact that, like, you know, even if different implementations are following a standard, different implementations are going to have different bugs, right? Which obviously, like, makes things, you know, a little bit bothersome when that happens to to developers. But I think, in my opinion, like, the pros far outweigh that, right? It means that, like, not only, not just one entity is controlling where the evolution of the language goes, Right. I mean, to me, like, you know, having that competition in in browser technology is super important. Right. Like, I really don't want to go back to the days where it was just IE5. <laughs> so, like, I, I don't know. To me, it's like it's, it's definitely like clearly on the pro side of things. But I mean, we also see the fact that like browser engines and JavaScript engines in particular have gotten like dramatically faster over the last several years. And like that can't all just be chalked up to like improvements in hardware. Just the fact that like we have multiple different teams that are trying different like different ways of optimizing these uh, these JavaScript engines like has has clearly like improved the state of JavaScript in the world today. How does that compare to the evolution we're seeing with WebAssembly, where we're seeing multiple different WebAssembly runtimes? Oh yeah, no, I think it's I think that it is very similar in that, and I also think that we're still in like the relatively early days of this. WebAssembly performance can get a lot better than it is now. Um, I know that a lot of the implementations are effectively like they're more or less like transliterating WebAssembly into like the uh, the inter- intermediates that are used for JavaScript as well, which have like pretty different you know performance needs, I guess, and different like paths that one can take for optimization. But for, so, for instance, like the as a counterexample to that engine that will eventually hopefully end up in Firefox is something called CraneLift. And so CraneLift is a project that we have been like working with Mozilla on for a while. Like Mozilla has done the vast majority of the work uh, on that, of course, but like we at Fastly have been uh, contributing to that as well. And so CraneLift uh, will eventually be the JIT backend for Firefox and is also the ahead of time backend for our compiler that we open sourced uh, just recently, actually. Right. And let's go a little bit deeper into that. So this tool that that Fastly built, it was, you built it, well, you've built a compiler and a runtime for WebAssembly. Uh, why would you do that? <laughs> That's a very reasonable question. We certainly could have just like taken V8 and uh, used that instead, uh, but we thought that we could get some really interesting new performance, especially performance-related speed-ups uh, if we did it ourselves and we did it in a pretty different way uh, than what's been done out there. So, what we did was we worked together with uh, Mozilla on CraneLift. And so basically what we did is we, we, we built our own compiler that uses CraneLift as a backend. So what it does is we take WebAssembly in the front end of it. And what comes out the back end is actually like a fully compiled, like normal executable object that is it's specifically meant for like Linux systems that run on Intel at the moment anyway. Uh, we'll see if, how, how we expand that in the future. But like the biggest reason for it was that we realized that especially at Fastly, like we, we have this problem that I guess maybe it's not super common. What we need to be able to do is run many, many thousands of requests per second. And what I want to be able to do is isolate each of them individually. Like I want to make each of these run inside of their own sandbox effectively. 
But at the same time, I also want to provide people access to higher level languages that they can run at the edge of our network. So what we realized was that using WebAssembly, we can actually get the startup time of these sandboxes down to on the order of like 15 to 20 microseconds and run like thousands of them in parallel, right? Which isn't really a thing that you can do with any other technology that's out there right now. And all of that really comes down to some of the decisions that were made about how WebAssembly works at a low level, right? So the way that it does linear memory and the way that it handles control flow, for instance, um, have made it possible that we don't need to do, we, we basically like what we can do is we can turn the safety requirements that we need into this collaboration between the compiler and the runtime. So the compiler generates code that given that it is run in a particular runtime, in a particular environment, um, we can prove to be safe. And that's kind of the, that's, that's the main reason behind it is that like there were other technologies out there. They had too much overhead for what we needed. And we realized that we could do it safely um, ourselves. You mentioned V8 there. So V8 today can run WebAssembly? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And to my mind, your answer, well, you illustrated two things. So one, there's kind of just value in in kind of going down your own path and uh, and you know in this kind of circumstance much like you know in in the in the uh, to some extent it just makes complete sense for for Mozilla does Mozilla continue to develop their own javascript engine do they continue to work on uh, spider monkey oh absolutely yeah okay. i know that they're, they're working on all sorts of uh, exciting things over there yeah so i mean that that continues to be you know a really nice check on on kind of google's control uh, well i don't know to what extent they control v8 i guess it could always be forked but their oversight and their uh you know their knowledge of of v8 uh it's really nice to have spider monkey in there so you know and and i think similarly here like fastly obviously charting a few charting a future for fastly you know it's very easy to imagine WebAssembly playing uh quite a huge role there and so you probably wouldn't want to take like Cloudflare's WebAssembly stuff off the shelf. You know, you want to build a core competency and you want to kind of vie for vie for influence, perhaps, and, and you know, earned influence in this space. And you know, the other thing you you kind of illustrated there is that different players are going to have different priorities. So if you think about V8. V8 does so much. Every node application is using V8, I, I believe. And so, you know, that's that's kind of a, a really wide spectrum of different uh, applications that are that are using this this same JavaScript engine. You're building a CDN. I mean, it's it the vision for what a CDN is is expanding by the day and and I think the aspirational asymptote you're going for is this idea of the edge cloud, which is really cool, but is a little bit more tightly scoped than uh, than like every yeah. single <laughs> Node.js application in existence. Yeah, uh, so 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 with that tighter scope, you get to make different lower level trade-offs. I think that's so exactly- what are Tell me about those trade-offs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess from the way that I think about this problem is that if you think about like the way that the network actually works, like if you're, if you're, you know, I don't know, providing some service to your users, you're using a website of some kind or a mobile app of some kind, right? You have multiple different stops along the path between your origin and, uh, and your end user where like different types of computation can be done. And I definitely don't want to like try to say that like the edge is the place where everything should be done because it's not right. Like it's really a question of like efficiency, right? So there are many things that it's actually like way more efficient for you to do at your origin server. 
like computing at the edge is always going to be like, you know, we, we have servers all over the world. We have them in places that you probably wouldn't normally want to put a server like your origin, right? Because it's expensive, like it's expensive real estate and like more expensive, like transit and so on, of course. But there are certain types of problems where it just makes a lot more sense to do them close to the user. Um, and I think we'll see more and more of those like specific use cases come out over the next few years. But like to me, like when I think about like where should I run this computation, like it's not really a, a question that you've realistically been able to just like decide before. Like you haven't been able to decide like, oh, this actually is better at like this point in the network or this one is better at my origin server. Like really all you had before was like you had the client and you had your server and that was it. Right. And so what I'm excited about with this is the ability for us to eventually here, like be able to say, like, actually, this particular computation belongs closer to the user. This one belongs somewhere in the middle. This one belongs at the origin. And this one over here should actually be run on the client itself. It's like it's a trade off we we haven't been able to make in the past. And so I'm pretty excited about that. I don't want to overuse this analogy. So, so if I'm going too far, stop me. But like in the JavaScript world, you basically, you know, it's like you choose either V8 or SpiderMonkey for a given application. You're, you're, to my knowledge, there's, you're never like going through V8 and then like going again through SpiderMonkey. Are you describing a world where you might use like one WebAssembly runtime for one application and then like another WebAssembly runtime might actually be more performant for another area of your application? Not exactly. So where I'm going with this is that you shouldn't really have to care. <laughs> so what I'm saying is like you, you can, you like uh, an average user would say like write their code and then be able to decide uh, where it runs, right? So if you are, you know, running it at your origin server, like, you know, maybe you don't need to use WebAssembly at all. Maybe you do. Or you could take that WebAssembly module that you've compiled and you could run it on the browser. Or you could take it and like throw it over to Fastly and have us run it on the edge. That's kind of where I'm going with it, like where like it really comes down to a question of like where it's most efficient to run it, like where it makes sense to run this particular computation. Indeed. But would the run times like the execute, you know, the, would the execution layer be written differently in those different environments? So when you say the execution layer, what do you mean? Well, I guess I mean like, OK, I, I'm, I'm shipping my my javascript code so like let's say i you know if i run my javascript code in in the browser in chrome it's running on v8 so it's so it's getting executed in the same way that it's getting executed on on the server because if i have my my node.js backend uh, on a server somewhere it's also running the v8 javascript engine i could imagine a world where there would be a, a, a javascript engine that would actually work better on a server you know than it would in the browser i, I mean I, maybe i'm completely oh, yeah. off here you know of course no, you hear what i'm saying sense. yeah totally yeah, so that I mean, that's a lot of the reason why we decided to build our own WebAssembly like compiler and runtime, right? Because right. like you know, we don't have the same restrictions in some ways as browsers, right? Like I and and we have different sets of restrictions. Really, is kind of the point, right? Like I don't need to like I have the ability to compile code beforehand, right? So I don't run a JIT on inside of our servers. Instead, we do a like ahead of time compilation of it. Like browsers don't have that ability. They download the code and then they compile it as they go. At the same time, like browsers also don't necessarily care quite as much about startup time. Like, you know, a couple milliseconds is probably perfectly reasonable there. Whereas like if you're running tens of thousands of these a second, like, you know, getting it down to the microsecond level is totally worthwhile, right? 
Now that said, you could still have the same runtime be deployed everywhere, but maybe you have some like config flag that says, okay, now we're on a server, and so that means that you should execute the code. You know, you should you should use the you know if you're on a server, like if on server, use the ahead of time <laughs> compiler. If if on client, use the just in time compiler. Like would that would that make sense, or do we do we just literally want different runtimes, like totally different code stacks? Yeah, I mean that that might make some sense. Uh, I mean if you look at the way that LLVM works, that's it's not totally dissimilar from that. If you have LLVM bitcode, you can you can choose to JIT that as you're executing it, or you can choose to like compile it ahead of time. So yeah, I mean that's reasonable. But again, I also think there's totally value in having like entirely different approaches to this. As long as they meet the standards, like the the end users shouldn't really like, you know, the average programmer shouldn't really need to worry about it. It's hopefully where we're going. Right. Okay, we're really getting into the weeds here, so I want to pop out a little bit. Define the term sandbox. How does that word apply to this conversation? Yeah, no, that's that is a great question. People use it in so many different ways and to apply to so many different technologies. I think that sandbox is it's a reasonable term, but like really what it's describing is like isolation of some kind. Like some level of isolation, which, you know, in, in different ways of using sandbox actually means different things. So I guess I can't I can't really speak to what everyone means when they say it. But like what I mean when I say it is that this is I'm going to execute this code inside of something that will prevent that code from reaching out other than in well-defined ways that I have allowed it to. And if that code crashes the rest of the system should be entirely unaware and like not have to worry about it, right? It doesn't affect anything except itself is really what it comes down to. And I think that if you like look at the way that we've approached the idea of sandbox, it's kind of, it's, it's really weird. Like depending on how you look at it, you could say that like a process running on a computer is also a sandbox, right? The whole concept of like virtual memory on computers is to sandbox every individual process into believing that it has its own computer that it's running on and not know about and to like not know about the other processes that are running. So to me, really, it comes down to like these concepts of like resource isolation, meaning that it doesn't need to, it doesn't worry about what other processes are accessing and fault isolation, meaning that it doesn't like a crashing WebAssembly instance or a crashing sandbox shouldn't be able to affect the rest of the system either. What are some different tools that we use for this sandboxing in modern infrastructure? So V8 certainly is one of those. Uh, containers are a different type of sandbox. Again, processes are a different type of sandbox. Arguably, like VMs, if you look at like VMware and Zen and all the different hypervisors are also sandboxes. And of course, WebAssembly itself is also a sandbox. So again, this is a super generic term, which is like, I don't know, I feel like it's almost like reaching the end of its useful life because like it can mean so many different things at this point. From a security standpoint, to some extent, we want as many sandboxes as possible. We want uh, as many layers between our application runtime and the bare metal underlying resources that are so sensitive and so vulnerable as possible. I guess, what what are the downsides of just layering on these, these sandboxes? Yeah, so the downside of all of these different sandboxes is that they all have performance overhead of some kind. So obviously, like, you know, if we're compiling something to WebAssembly and then compiling it to native code, most of the time anyway, it's not going to be as efficient as just compiling that code to native code to start with, right? 
Like there are, there are certain micro benchmarks that we found where actually like WebAssembly goes faster than native code, which is fun, but most of them are not that way, right? They always have some level of overhead. If you then take that and run it inside of a VM of some kind, that VM also has overhead. Uh, I stick a container in there and like, of course, you also have overhead, different types of overhead in that case, but but still, it, it, it all comes down to overhead. And so, so I guess like our goal uh, is to eventually get to the point where something like Lucid that we open source recently would be capable of like, you know, sandboxing things entirely itself. Of course, like Spectre throws a bit of a wrench into there, uh, which is very irritating. But, you know, so for instance, with our Terrarium demo that we put out there, you know, that was a tech demo of the compiler and runtime that we had been working on. And so, of course, we didn't fully trust it yet. And so those actually run inside of a WebAssembly instance that is running inside of a container that is running inside of Kubernetes that is heavily monitored <laughs> to look for breakouts, right? Because that was kind of the point of that whole tech demo was to, like, get some production experience with what we had built and also, like, see if people can break it. But eventually, once we get to the point where we have a lot of trust in that runtime, we would like to be able to do that without that because it would like dramatically reduce the amount of overhead that is actually required to run any of these sandboxes. Like I'm fairly sure that like at this point, Lucid is like one of the lightest weight sandboxes that has ever been made. So of course that, that comes with its own trade-offs. To thrust us back into the world of fairly niche, somewhat, I guess, advanced topics, the modern way that functions as a service get run is I have some code I want to execute on the cloud provider. It's a function. I give it to the cloud provider. That code, upon uh, getting event triggered, gets loaded into a container. You have to do the, the compilation step. You've got to load all the packages. Hopefully, the container has, has the necessary tool chain to run whatever kind of code is there in your function. And eventually, after some time, your your function will run within a container. This is sandboxed, and it's also on-demand computation. It has scale-up. It has scale-down. Basically, everything we want out of a cloud provider, but there is some some of this cold start issue. And, and to my mind, WebAssembly seems like a better medium for the spin-up and execution of these kind of functions as a service. Would you agree with that? I absolutely agree with that. And I think that based on what I've heard from others in the industry, like that is the direction that a lot of us are heading in right now. And that's effectively the direction we're heading in as well. What needs to be done to have that be a reality? Right. So obviously we're going to need, uh, you know, more testing, of course, for like the safety properties of these different runtimes. But I think that's actually a relatively small part at this point. Like we've had a decent amount of production experience in a lot of uh, a lot of the WebAssembly runtimes that are out there now. But to me, the bigger problem right now is uh, language support, right? So I love writing in Rust. I love writing in C. I really like uh, TypeScript as well. A lot of people don't, though, and like they don't necessarily fit the problem space that a lot of people are working in. And so like, I think that realistically for us to get to the point where WebAssembly can you know, take over a lot of these use cases, we need more support from the developers of those languages, of course, to actually like produce high quality WebAssembly code. But also we need some changes in WebAssembly itself to be able to support higher level languages. That's certainly on its way, uh, but we're, we're a bit of a ways off from that still. Since we're mentioning this function as a service, paradigm. I'd love to get your perspective for how 
the usage of functions as a service will evolve. I think this is the the edge cloud vision to some extent. How does the edge cloud look to you? And uh, what what does that aspirational term mean? And how does it relate to functions as a service? Sure. Okay. So I, I differentiated a little bit from the like the usual concept of functions as a service because normally when you're describing a functions as a service service, what you're really describing is kind of, well, I, I guess you actually said this a little bit ago, you're describing a, a function that runs inside of a container that is located in some location. It is in some individual space, right? Whether that's in like US East or US West or, you know, EU West. I differentiate that from, from what we are planning for the edge cloud, because when we say that we are going to run something, you know, run a function on our platform, what we're really describing is that we will deploy that function everywhere, right? We have, you know, a, a large number of servers spread around a large number of locations around the world. And when you actually like go and click deploy on this thing, I want it to go to all of them. Um, and so the whole idea of like needing to spin up and spin down your computations, like in our case, shouldn't actually be a thing. Right. Like if you have users all around the world and you have spikes in there, like in their viewership and so on, like our platform should already be ready for it. So there shouldn't be that whole concept of cold start. And to be fair, like that matters a lot for us. It doesn't matter a lot for all use cases, though. Like there are certainly going to be things where, you you know, it makes more sense to run these in a like centralized functions as a service sort of uh, setup. But on the other hand, there are also problems where you want to be able to respond to your users like really, really rapidly with small, like small pieces of computation. So I think at that point, like having those sandboxes effectively ready to go on every server around the world and ready to respond to those users that are close to them, I think is really valuable. And that's the primary way that I differentiate it. It's kind of a different execution and deployment model, uh, fundamentally anyway. When I started doing podcasts about different companies like three and a half years ago when I started this podcast, I did some shows with CDNs. And around that time, I mean, there was enough complexity and, and enough, uh, you know, enough complexity to be, to be worth discussing just a content delivery network, like, which is what Fastly started as. A content delivery network historically is just used for like static assets, you know, just like an image or a movie, you know, these things that you need, you know, kind of at the edge, but you want to leave them on the servers. So you don't want to, yeah, anyway, I mean, content, but we're, I'm, we're, we're going from this, this place where we used content delivery networks just as caches for, uh, for assets, for storage, for static assets to a place where we are caching computation. That to me seems like a, a pretty fundamental change from the, from the perspective of a CDN. Oh yeah, no, I totally agree. It's it, it's fun. It's a fundamental change, and it's also a really exciting change. Because honestly, like caching static assets is not all that exciting of a problem. It, it is still a problem, and it's a hard problem when you do it at scale. But it's not all that exciting. So I'm pretty jazzed about the the direction that this is all going in. But I guess one thing I would say about that is that it is a fundamental shift, but I don't think it's a sudden shift. When we launched about eight years ago, it was primarily to differ like we had we had a problem that we were specifically trying to solve that other CDNs couldn't solve for us right like me uh, Arthur and uh, Arthur is our CEO um, and I both came from you know running really large uh, websites with user-generated content so Arthur was the CTO of Wikia for instance and he had approached the various CDNs and said hey 
I know that you are primarily for caching static content. Um, have you considered the fact that like a wiki is actually static until someone goes and changes it? Right. And so like the, the use case specifically was, you know, if you imagine um, like, I don't know, a Game of Thrones wiki or something like that, you know, there aren't that many changes when the show is not on. Right. And then a new episode comes out and suddenly you have this like flurry of changes. Right. And so the problem was like he wanted to be able to cache like the entire like HTML content of all these pages. And uh, the problem, of course, was that when he tried to do this, the actual users revolted <laughs> because in order for them to, you know, view the changes that they had made, they had to wait for uh, like a purge to happen. They had to wait for that content to actually be replicated around the world, which at the time was taking, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, depending on which CDN you went with. Um, and so the thing that we differentiated on the very beginning was being able to purge content really, really rapidly. So our, our, our purging system is still like, you know, I think the fastest out there, it's about 150 milliseconds around the world, which again, fundamentally changed what you could cache at the edge, like what you could cache in the CDN. It was also kind of, in my opinion, like kind of the first step toward being able to do these like more dynamic things at the edge of the network. It suddenly wasn't just about static content itself. It was about like, oh, well, you know, this content can change. If I can somehow integrate, you know, updating my CDN with, you know, my, you know, my backend, my, my application server, like suddenly I can do a, like a lot more interesting things. Um, so I think it has been like kind of a gradual but fundamental change. Well, so let's go a little bit deeper there. So let's take like Netflix as an example. So if I'm on Netflix, you know, I, I go to netflix.com and, you know, for the most part, my experience as I browse around uh, the website, like my application is not changing that much. I'm like clicking around and I've got like uh, the Lolomo, the list of list of movies. And it's, you know, most of the stuff that's changing are the assets that I'm viewing. I, I click into a list of movies. I click on an individual movie. And, you know, most of the code is probably already in my browser for loading that experience. What my computer needs to request is is the assets. It needs to go out to the CDN and, and request a static asset, which is, which is one of these movies. So that's the state of affairs for most applications. Like that applies to Facebook too. Why do I need to cache any of this compute? Well, so what I would say is that, well, imagine a world where, <laughs> imagine a world where, <laughs> where instead of just uh, having the static assets, like the the picture of the, um, you know, the, the cover image there, you actually also had, say, like the list of movies that would even be on your homepage cached as well there. Okay, the problem with that, of course, is that now you have like if Netflix has millions of users, like now you have millions of copies of different personalized content at the edge there, right? And so what I think computation would give us at the edge is the ability to say, instead of caching all of that like repeated content, all those millions of individual like personalized things, which is, you know, difficult enough as it is, what if we could just generate those things at the edge? What if like, I had my list of movies and I had your tastes there and I had like a model for what what your particular taste would prefer. And I could just generate the list of movies that you're going to like right there on the spot. I think that would be, I don't know. I think that like, that's a pretty exciting prospect to me. Like maybe that one specifically doesn't work quite as well as some others, but like the whole concept there is that it's, it's a lot more efficient to do it that way. Like rather than going all the way back to some central server and then just like getting the assets locally, like the work the work of actually like generating a page isn't the assets. It's the, it's the logic that goes into it, right? 
Amazing example. That, thanks for running with me on the on the Netflix uh, example. That's perfect. We're running out of time. We alluded to the kind of diplomatic fracas uh, earlier. Tell me about the, I guess, subtle or perhaps not so subtle battle or perhaps not battle between the big players for control of this ecosystem. Sure. I mean, honestly, like there isn't really a battle, <laughs> which is like very surprising to me. Like I started attending the WebAssembly community group and working group um, a few years ago, a couple years ago now. And I definitely expected there to be like some some level of ire in the room. And it really wasn't there. Like it's just a bunch of people who like, well, so a, a lot of like, you know, really fantastic compiler developers, first of all, um, but like a group of people who all just want to do a reasonable thing, a thing that will work for like for the users. So I, I've like, I was really surprised by that and I've gotten used to it. Uh, but now that you pointed out like, yeah, that, that is kind of an unusual and like amazing thing now that I think about it, because it definitely wouldn't have been that way a decade or two ago. It was a very different very different world with about browser wars going on. <laughs> it's a charming element of the WebAssembly community. I, I always did you pay attention to the container orchestration wars at all? Not all that much. I managed to avoid that one, thankfully. It was brutal. It was brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I, st- I I was I was a journalist, and I I got a you know a bullet whizzed past my ear, and and uh, you know I I got a, got some severe scratches from that. Uh, that's how how vitriolic it, it was. Well, I mean not vitriolic, but it was it was a dogfight. Sure. Because you know people thought this was like the directly commercializable technology, and I guess to some extent it was. But like what ultimately ended happening ha- happening is the, like the company who who outstretched its arms most widely was able to kind of encircle the space with its generosity, and that was that was Google with Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah. My, my, my thought on that is like, you know, Fastly spends a lot of time doing standards work. And to me, like my, my take on this is like, we should have like those dogfights, obviously. That's like a kind of fundamental part of running a business with competition. But like, it shouldn't be over the fundamental stuff. Let's agree on like, basically like a, a watermark where it's like, yeah, okay, all this fundamental stuff, like let's, let's get that out of the way. And then let's fight over the higher level stuff above that. Right. Let's fight over the products above that. Trying to turn these fundamental technologies into products, like I think just ends up hurting programmers and end users. Right. No one, no one enjoys that. And like at the end of the day, it all ends up being like that stuff all ends up being commoditized anyway. So let's agree on the fundamental technologies and then like fight over the like the you know higher level products. That's that's my hot take on this. <laughs> all right. Last question, and it's another hot take. Let's fast forward 10 years. What percentage of Fastly's CDN transactions are related to decentralized smart contracts? <laughs> Hopefully as few as possible. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you did you want me to have like an actual response to that? I really don't have one. I'm sorry. <laughs> really? Are, are you a total really Are you a total uh total blockchain non-believer? I'm a blockchain non-believer. Oh, oh yeah. my God. You know, know, if you're looking for an opportunity to differentiate from Cloudflare, you can start to take it more seriously. All right. Maybe I should be looking into it more closely. Okay. Well, Tyler <laughs> McMullen, thank you for coming on the show. It's been real fun talking to you. It's been great. Thank you so much. Wow.